Hello, friends. We are working on some big projects behind the scenes and realized the need to take a little break from recording new book clubs. Also, we have gained quite a few new followers in the last 12 months. And so we thought that now might be the right moment to revisit three of our most popular book clubs, the books from C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. A few years ago, I, Sarah, wrote a short article about the trilogy, and it has had almost 6,000 views since then and continues to get quite a bit of attention every single month. Last March, we released Out of the Silent Planet, and it quickly became one of our most popular book clubs. In April, we released Paralandra, and in May, we released That Hideous Strength. While we work on some other things for you in the background, we will be re-releasing each of those podcasts in the same format this year. Thank you for listening in. We are so glad that you are here. Hello! You are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft. I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and we have our Biblio Guides ladies with us today for our book club. We have Sarah Kim, Tanya Arnold, and Lara Yevarino. Diane, it's about time that we get done with this Ransom Trilogy. <laughs> yes. in, in the first two, uh, we had the joy of having Christy Stansfield here with us as well. But today, um, some things came up, and at the last minute, she wasn't able to come. Um, but I think she's thrilled because she she really just wants a deadline <laughs> to make sure she reads the book, and she did finish it last night. So Yay. we all crossed the finish line on this one. Yay! Thank you, girls, for reading along. (laughs) So, friends, we're going to start this one with a little bit of introduction, and then we're going to go around and have a little bit of commentary, and then we'll get into the book club itself. But first and foremost, the most important thing for you to know is that this is the third book in a trilogy. So if you have not read or listened to the podcasts on one and two, which would be Out of the Silent Planet, which is the first one, or Paralandra, which is the second one, Uh, you're probably going to be confused in this one. And this is definitely the sort of capstone in that trilogy. And there's going to be spoilers in here right from the get-go. So if you're on this long wind-up is to give you an opportunity to grab your phone, pause it, and switch to something else if this is not what you want to be listening to right now. So that a bit of housekeeping. So spoilers will begin immediately. So if you're afraid of spoilers at all, this is the moment to turn off your phone or your device and listen at another time. Next, wanted you to also understand that even if you're following along and you're good with spoilers, if you have an audience, this is probably not a book club that you're going to want to have people listening into without you being fully aware of what's in this discussion. Definitely, this is not for little ears. You may not even want this to be for middle school or teen years. That's up to you to decide. But just so you know, there is definitely some significant content that we're going to discuss today. And this is is for moms and dads. So friends, Diane and I want to start off by saying that this book is excellent. In fact, it's my favorite of the three. However, it is an incredibly complex and difficult 
book. There is no way we will do justice to this book today. There, we, We've spent a lot of time figuring out how do we come at this podcast today so that it's useful to you um, and still can fit inside of, you know, an hour. The only thing that we could, the only thing we could come to was that our desire here today is to make you well enough aware of what's in this book that you can determine if and when you want to read this and with who you may wish to read it with. So our our goal here is simply to discuss this book as a book that we read and have a book club discussion about, but knowing that we're just barely scratching the surface. This is not a close reading kind of discussion. We're not going to do this for four or five episodes and break down all of the really interesting stuff in here. But it is designed to help you determine if this is one you want to know more about, or if you have read it, it's one for you to join us and, and, and listen in. And if you have read it and want to talk about it, we want to invite you to come and talk with us in our specific dedicated book club conversation group. So join us at the Plumfield Reads part of the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network. It's totally free and you can join there and we would love to hear what you think about this book. So with that long wind up, here, here's where we, Diane and I, come down on this book. This is a great book for adults. This is a book that we think adults probably need to read. His Lewis's ability to prophesy about the future is it's chilling, to be honest. We do not like this book for younger readers of any stripe. It's our consensus that this is a book that you would really do with a college student and beyond, but not everybody here is necessarily going to agree about that. And that's totally okay. And we're going to let you hear from them in a minute. Our personal thought is that this is one that always, 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 mama, you know your kid. You know your family. You are the person who gets to decide what does and does not come into your home and how that happens. And we support that passionately. In my personal family, I'm not going to do this book with my children. At least not right now. I'm looking at my junior, my rising junior, and he's not ready for this. I don't know when he will be ready for this. I don't, I don't want him to have to do this one right now. And there are two reasons for that. The first is that there's a lot of stuff in here that a young person won't understand. And if they don't understand it, they might not enjoy this. And if they don't enjoy this, they might never return to this book later when it would really serve them well. So there's a fear there of dissuading them from wanting to read Lewis in general or this kind of Lewis in the future. And secondly, if they do understand it, they probably won't understand it with the wisdom that comes with maturity and age. And it could sow in them some seeds of weirdness that you may not want them to have. So again, Mama, you know your babies. We're not trying to tell you what to do. We're just trying to give you permission to put this down and walk away from it if it sounds like this one wouldn't be a fit for you. Bottom line, you got to read it. That's the best thing here. You got to read this for yourself. I think you will know for sure just by reading the first two books whether or not this is one you even want to consider. So that was my monologue (laughs) to start us off. Um, So again, Mama, we're just trying to give you the cautions and set up the landscape for you. But 
Diane, do you want to add more to that? And then we want to talk to the other ladies and see what their feelings are about this, like what level they would give it to if they would give it to their own kid and, and that kind of a thing. No, I think you put it all pretty well, just that it's disturbing to both of us when we hear that the the entire trilogy is recommended to like middle school aged kids. And one, my first concern always about that was how are they even going to understand what's happening? Yeah. And then yeah. should they? Do we want them to? Right. 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 And Laura, you said something in our in our pre-conversation. You said something like, then, or maybe it was Christy who said it. I forget which. One of you said, why would you even start this trilogy if you couldn't finish it? And And that is one of the reasons why Diane and I are very hesitant to even recommend this trilogy, even recommend the first book to readers, because we do have the sense that while they can be read independently... And you can get great, great fruit out of them. And for my own situation, I am going to be doing the first two books with my 16 and 14-year-olds. There is a good question to ask there. Maybe we should just save the Space Trilogy for college and beyond. Well, and let's just make the point that Lewis wasn't pretending to write for children. Right. This is not an, a continuation or prequel or whatever to Narnia. This is for adults, all three of them. And that's very misleading because the book cover, the cover I have, which is probably the one that a lot of people will see, the red and purple one, it specifically says on here, C.S. Lewis, author of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that it's marketed incorrectly. It should say C.S. Lewis, author of The Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce. That would Mm -hmm. be more appropriate. Mm -hmm. Sarah, you read this as a teenager, right? Yeah, I actually don't remember exactly when I read it. It may have been that I read it in middle school in seventh or eighth grade. Wow. Um, Because I'm pretty sure I read it in Canada before we moved to Hawaii, which would have meant I was younger than ninth grade. Wow. My parents pretty much let me read whatever I wanted. They had no idea what I was reading. They didn't care. Um, They were happy that I was reading and that I was a good student and all of that. And I love to read. I loved Narnia. And that's probably why I picked these up and wanted to read them. I remember, I think, kind of enjoying them and also a lot like understanding that a lot was just like going over my head and I didn't really understand what was happening. It didn't turn me off from them, though. I have a good memory of them. I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to be reading them again as an adult because I, yeah, it's just way more to get out of it (laughs) as an adult. Um, I think this last book is actually the plot um, is a lot more fast paced and engaging. And mm-hmm. so I think for a reader where everything, you know, most of what he's trying to actually say is kind of going over their head, they're still kind of engaged in the story aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, I don't know that that makes it valuable to be reading it at that age. That was just my experience. I don't know at this point yet if I will let my son, who's only 13 right now, read it when he's in high school. I might. Um, I would definitely want to read it with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I, I love the point that you make. This That hideous strength, this book that we're discussing, it is so full of layers that I think anybody can get something out of it. The question simply is, will they get enough out of it to want to come back when they can get a lot more out of it? That would be, you know, that would be one of the challenges. Tanya, what about you? What would you do with yours? So I've been thinking about this because I do know the stance that you and Diane take. And in many ways... I agree. I always believe that parents are first and foremost Mm -hmm. 
the stewards of their children, and that is a sacred obligation. Amen. And so we're always looking to provide enough information for parents to make the best decision for their personal families. And that can look different from family to family. Mm-hmm. Um, God seems to have a way of having individual people on different paths and they don't all look the same. And we have to learn to be okay with that sometimes, yes, I think. Yes, absolutely. So um, I also am the type of parent that wants to walk with my child through Uh, difficult conversations and growth opportunities and things to learn rather than leaving it to the world or for them to stumble upon something or even with a college professor. Right. Right. Who might not be trustworthy. Who might not be trustworthy. Yes. And I still think, um, you know, that 18 to 25 year old age, there's a lot happening there. And with a good relationship with your children, there's still a lot of things that can happen in that time period where you have an opportunity to continue to mentor them. Yes. Mm-hmm. So my thoughts on this, though, might have looked different five or 10 years ago, mm. where I now have a 22-year-old and a 19-year-old and a 17-year-old, and where I currently see the culture, yeah. I feel differently than I would have five years ago. And I want to actually just quote Lewis here and speak to something that he said that helped inform my opinion here. So this is from the preface. He said, okay, and first of all, we can get into this in a little bit, but I, I'm kind of opposed to this being called science fiction, mm. and I think we should stop referring to it as the Space Trilogy. I think we should call it the Ransom Trilogy. I agree. Because this is not science fiction, and I don't think he intended it to be. And from the preface, he, he doesn't really speak to that. So he says, I have called this a fairy tale in the hope that no one who dislikes fantasy may be misled by the first two chapters into reading further and then complain of his disappointment. If you ask why, intending to write about magicians, devils, pantomime animals, and planetary angels, I nevertheless begin with such humdrum scenes and persons, I reply that I am following the traditional fairy tale. We do not always notice its method, because the cottages, castles, woodcutters, and petty kings with which a fairy tale opens have become for us as remote as the witches and ogres to which it proceeds." but they were not remote at all to the men who made and first enjoyed the stories. They were indeed more realistic and commonplace than Bracton College is to me, for many German peasants had actually met cruel stepmothers, whereas I have never in any university come across a college like Bracton. This is a tall story about devilry, though it has behind it a serious point, which I have tried to make in my abolition of man. And then he goes on. So the very fact that he calls this a fairy tale brings to my mind the reason that we would read children fairy tales. And I think if you didn't have a greater understanding of the importance of reading fairy tales to your children, you would easily say that fairy tales are inappropriate for children. Absolutely. Because most fairy tales are horrifying. But when you start to understand what a fairy tale is doing and what the story is that a fairy tale is telling, then you see that underneath layer and it's, it, it becomes really powerful. And so if I look at my children, my uh, children who are on the cusp of adulthood and I only have maybe one or two years left, do I want to present to them this this story that's very true and that I am seeing happen in our world in a way that C.S. Lewis was saying was coming? It's so prevalent in 43. Like when I read this story, things jumped out at me and took my breath away because it was so, he could have just said it today and I'm seeing it today. Right. And can I give my children this fairy tale? and mentor them through it in a way that is going to be impactful for them 
and let them, wherever they're at, start to take those layers, but maybe open up their hearts in a way where they're going to remember it and want to come back to it. And so I think I would. Mm. I think I would read to a junior or a senior this story because I also believe whether you homeschool or whether you public school, your children are already facing demons Mm -hmm. that we did not face in previous generations. That's my personal belief. I think with the with the coming of the internet and social media, there are dragons. Yeah. And I just, I want my kids to see it. And I think one thing that a lot of parents struggle with is maybe they see certain things and you could have maybe a rebellious teenager that thinks you're loco, mm-hmm. that thinks you're just seeing things where there aren't things. And so why not bring to them a master storyteller who is seeing things in his own time, who has a mind like, I mean, Lewis is unique. Right, yeah. He's unique, right? Bring to them Lewis and let them learn from the Lewis, from Lewis. Let them learn directly from someone who had some powerful things to say and not and not you being preachy to your child. Right, 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 right. And so I think I want my teenagers, I think I want them to have this. But I know what's going on in this story. I've thought it through and I'm ready to have those discussions. So that's where I'm at. See, and I... I want to, and I mostly agree with you. Mostly. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) I think this is the most compelling of the three stories. I think this is one of the most compelling stories about modernity in general. I think that this story tackles those, those horrible demons that we are facing as a culture. And I think it does it head on in a brilliant and, you know, just magical way. What I struggle with is the sexual deviance that is so present in this book. And I think the scandal that it could provide for our children. Now, I know that there are lots and lots of kids out there who are watching all the things on TV and they are going to all the things and they see all the Instagram and and TikTok and and Snapchat and all that. I do. I, I recognize that. I still have pause. Call me a brood, but I have pause. The scene where the fairy is torturing Jane by first disrobing, taking her own clothing off, pulling Jane to her and putting her between her knees and then burning her with cigarettes. Now, my daughter's, po- <laughs> she's editing this podcast right now, so she's hearing this, but I'm, I'm taking the sting out of it right now by talking about it in that way. And maybe that's the way to do this, but there's a lot of that kind of subversive deviance in this book that we as adults go, wow, yes, that is present. There are a lot of people who have, who have given themselves over to demons in this way. But do we want our children facing that just yet? I struggle with that. And I think this is, again, every parent is going to have their own prejudices and their own sensitivities. And so you also know what your kids are exposed to. You know what they do and do not need. And so that's where I am not pushing back against you, Tanya. I do mostly agree with you. I have pause over those subject lines that I see woven throughout. And I feel like it's, it could be really, really suffocating for a sensitive reader. That just brings something to my mind. This is personal. This is okay to stay in the podcast, but it's also okay to remove. Okay. But I was sexually abused as a child. And so what's interesting is that I can see it a mile away. Mm. And I don't buy the stories of women who claim 
that they had no idea what their husbands were doing. Now, I believe they may have turned a blind eye subconsciously or consciously, Mm -hmm. but at some level they knew Mm -hmm. because the signs are there. The red flags are there. So for me, I never, ever want my children to experience sexual abuse. Right. I want them to see it a mile away. I hear you on that. I want them to know where the danger zones are. So the conversations in our home aren't from a fear base, but from a, you're going to be going out into the world. Here's things that I want you to know that's appropriate when you're eight to keep of you course. safe without of course. sharing them the scary right. things, right? right? So when I'm looking at a 17, 18 year old, if you're thinking of sending them to a university, especially, mm-hmm. the sexual deviation is going to be there on day one, in my opinion, yeah. or maybe in my fear. I'm not sure. <laughs> And so I just want them to see it, especially my girls. Mm-hmm. No, nope, my son too, mm-hmm. because what I feel like is the devil is attacking through right uh, pornography at levels the world has never seen, right. sexual deviation at levels the world has never right. seen. And I just want them to know it when they see it and to be able to call it for what it is. So in this book, I feel like it's like actually a gentle way <sighs> of having the conversation without, because in my opinion, Lewis's brilliance is he tells you something that's pretty horrifying without traumatizing you as the reader. yeah, And very few people can do that. Right now, all these authors that are writing that want to tell their stories, they want you to just walk the trauma with them. Do we need a nation of traumatized people? Right. He walks us through it and shows us the horror of it without abusing us himself. And does it in such a subtle way. I will admit, such a subtle way. I've read that scene with the fairy multiple times. This was the first time that I caught that she had pulled Jane between her knees. Yeah, because and Lara, what there was, was so much other stuff going on what, in the scene at the same time. Yes, exactly. And I think Lara was sharing that she for with a was it a first reading this time for you, Lara? That that scene even just you didn't even catch that scene. Is that right? Yeah. So in Paralandra, where they were talking about um, the difference between knowing evil by experience and being revealed it by um, by God. And I feel like that's what Tanya's talking about, that in this book, C.S. Lewis is making you aware of, but not experience this mm. deviation. Mm-hmm. So I, I have to say my feelings on this book are that I would give, given the number of books you can probably read with your kids before they go out into the world, I would read abolition of man and the screw tape letters a hundred times over before I would read any of the three of these. Um, I could be convinced mm-hmm. that there still should be made time to read them, but I have not read The Great Divorce, and it, it could be that I would make those three as substitutes for these three. Yeah, it's interesting. The Great Divorces, you would like that one. It's marvelous. Don't you think, mm-hmm. Diane, The Great Divorce feels more like McDonald? Well, yes, he's in it. <laughs> he's in it. I mean, McDonald's he's in it. In it. Yeah. He, he's Lewis's guide. You, you, you need to read that one. <laughs> Let's not forget about Till We Have Faces. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So I'm reading Till We Have Faces right now. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. And that's like in between, right? Wouldn't you say that screw tape you could give to almost anybody Till We Have Faces? I will tell you, when we did Till We Have Faces in my Tuesday night or in my Hobbit Club book club, there were people who thought that I had given them pornography to read. It's not true. It, it, there's nothing pornographic about it, but they no. were so scandalized by two scenes in there that were non-issues for most of us, but they were 
traumatized by it because it it reached out when the man is when, when well, I won't I won't spoil, spoil anything but there's one scene and it it the one of the people in the in the room deals with people who are going through similar things and he said to hear those screams he said I hear those screams in my line of work and I can't not hear them and it mm. completely ju- just robbed all the joy for him of that whole book it was done at that point and so I think Till We Have Faces is like in between screw tape and this. Wouldn't you say, Diane? Uh, maybe so. I would be very careful about who I read that with. And I would not just hand it to a teenager. And part of the reason for that is the same as we were talking about earlier, that the first time I read it, I somebody just handed it to me. Oh, here, this is another C.S. Lewis book. It's probably going to be good. And I got to the end and went, what? What happened? And I yeah. started right over again to see if, yeah. okay, now that I know how it ends, can I figure out how it got there? And right. so it's, if I hadn't been willing to do that, I might've put that aside and said, that's all the Lewis I'm reading. Yeah. So I read Till We Have Faces and the first time I read it, it also went way over my head. I think I also read a lot of classics in high school. I was starving for really good literature mm-hmm. and somebody to talk to about mm-hmm. it because I would read it and not understand it and wanted to read it and wanted to appreciate it. Yeah. And so I think any parents out there, you know, take the time to read some of these with your kids. I think it's, you know, if you have a child who was like me, they could be like really starving for it. Yes. And if you just let them read the books on their own, they're missing something. Right. Right. Because they don't come alive. Until you have someone to talk to about them, right? Mm-hmm. I want to share one other thought about, like, I love what Diane was saying about this as a book for adults. Mm-hmm. I think absolutely, amen, 100%. Most classics are actually for adults. And so it's interesting how we read them and yes. select certain ones for high schoolers, right? right? Yes. And I think that needs to be a very thoughtful process. That's interesting how that's changed over times. Maybe books that were required reading when we were in high school. It's interesting to see what is now the required reading in high school, <laughs> and that 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 changes you. It, it yes, it, it can redirect you know based on what you're reading, right. right? So one of the other things that was in this book, um, that just kind of clinched it for me that even if it wasn't a teenager. I would love to do this with the 19 to 25 year old, yes. mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, that age is really critical. Absolutely, yeah. And the world knows it. Yes. Because that's where we shift the thinking is in the college years. Right. So it is, it's a powerful time where they feel invincible. They feel like they can change the world. They're trying to exert their independence. Mm-hmm. They, want they want to have new thoughts and they're not really interested in old fuddy duddies right there's all (laughs) kinds of things happening in their brains but there's this concept that I teach my children that I read in a book it's called the second seventh so if you were to take the average lifespan of a human and say that's like 84 years like dogs and got it right yeah and you divide that into seven parts Mm -hmm. so 12 years old Mm -hmm. So, you, so I kind of draw this graph for my kids, and I've done this for teenagers. And so we show like 0 to 12 is the first seventh, mm-hmm. and then 13 to 24 is the second seventh, and so on. And then I ask them to tell me what are the most important decisions they think that they will have to make in their life. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they make, they make a list such as who I will marry, what my profession will be, where I'll go to college, mm-hmm. will I buy a house, mm-hmm. how much money might I make, 
right, they just start coming up with all of these things, who my friends are. And I said, okay, so I want you to just take a look and I want you to draw a line to where all of these decisions, most likely the majority of them are going to happen in your life. Oh, yeah. And they all happen. The majority of these all happen in the second seventh, that 12 to 24 year old stage, a little bit the 24 to 30, but Mm -hmm. primarily your trajectory is being set in that second seventh. Mm -hmm. And a lot of your decisions from then on are going to go on that trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so I love one of the things that Lewis did in this book is he shows how sometimes decisions can happen and you don't even realize that you took a wrong step. Or didn't take a choice at all, like Mark, who just doesn't make decisions at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to read this quote because this quote just jumped out at me. So it's really confusing what happens to him. And he starts getting involved with this organization. And he doesn't even understand how he got there or what's happened or what his job is or what's going on. And as the reader, you're really, really frustrated on his behalf, especially if you're type A. You're, you're losing your mind over it. I just want to show how one character finds himself making a decision without realizing he had made a decision Mm. and how this could be really impactful for a young adult to read and be able to recognize for themselves when they actually are making a decision Mm -hmm. or maybe falling into something that they wouldn't normally do because it's a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. And I think if we could be more thoughtful about these things, Mm -hmm. maybe we could protect ourselves in some ways. So it said... This was the first thing Mark had been asked to do, which he himself, before he did it, Mm -hmm. clearly knew to be criminal. Mm -hmm. But the moment of his consent almost escaped his notice. Certainly there was no struggle, no sense of turning a corner. There may have been a time in the world's history when such moments fully revealed their gravity, with witches prophesying on a blasted heath or visible Rubicons to be crossed. But for him, it all slipped past in a chatter of laughter, of that intimate laughter between fellow professionals which of all earthly powers is strongest to make men do very bad things before they are yet individually very bad men. Mm. I love that. I highlighted that too. Oh, I just got chills. Mm-hmm. And I just thought every 19 to 25 year old needs to think about this idea. That's not the only time that happens to Mark. No. There's at least right. one other significant time where he just doesn't decide which is a decision. So I I meant Mm -hmm. to keep track of how many times that happened, but at least twice. And I think three where he Mm -hmm. just lets the moment go. And that is a decision in itself. And it almost is, you know, the undoing of him. Right. Well, and it's frightening it and it's the beginning and it's, it's the beginning point of that hideous string. And it's where it's really important Mm -hmm. that we understand how Mark got here. So, For our readers who have not read this book, the thumbnail sketch of this is that the characters we have been following in the first two books are now in England again. In the first book, we have the character of Ransom, who we loosely think is patterned off of J.R.R. Tolkien. And he is kidnapped by two evil men, Weston and Divine. And Weston and Divine take him to Malacandra, which is another planet, and some things happen there. When they return home from Malacandra, the three are still alive and well. In the second book, Ransom is summoned to a brand new planet called Paralandra, which is an Eden-like planet, and he is summoned there because Weston is bringing great evil to that place, and Weston ends up being possessed by that evil, and he dies in Paralandra. Now Ransom is back home and Ransom is suffering enormously, both spiritually and physically under the pain 
of the the things that have happened to him in Paralandra, and his suffering is redemptive suffering. So his suffering is a really good and important suffering that is used as for a force of goodness in the war that is now raging. Heaven is descending onto earth, and the veil between the spiritual and the material is very, very thin. And Mark and Jane are an unhappily newly married couple. Mark is a professor in a college, and he wants to be thought well of by his other uh, co- his other colleagues. And he is handpicked for a position at a new institute that is, in fact, under the power of divine. Jane, through a series of interesting circumstances, finds herself inside of a commune that is being built up around ransom. So we see two camps both vying for one of the agencies of heaven, the the evil and the good. Mark and Jane have a very dysfunctional marriage. Their marriage is dysfunctional purely because Mark and Jane are, in my opinion, Lewis's embodiment of the average English man and woman of their time. He is really crying out to the English people to say, do you see what we are becoming as a nation? Mark is just like the everyman, and Jane is just like every woman. And she is, she is the type of woman who will usher in the women, the, you know, the feminist revolution of the 60s in just a decade and a half later. So we see the tension in their marriage that this, this um, prototype feminist is not getting her needs met because she's, she's not really satisfied with her femininity. She's trying to be masculine, but she is, in fact, feminine. And she's struggling with her role in society because of that. And Mark, he is just the everyman who wants to have a comfortable job, but be promoted and constantly be thought well of and rise through the ranks and achieve great power and accolades without too much discomfort to himself. And the question becomes, will their marriage survive? Because so much depends upon that marriage surviving. Because in a way, they can be a new Adam and a new Eve. So Mark has been recruited. Mark has been recruited by these evildoers, and they have seduced him through any means that they can use to get at him. And all the other people in their company have all been equally seduced and recruited with whatever their little personal sins are. And in the case of Mark, they've plied him with alcohol, and they are turning him into an alcoholic. And that is why I find that to be what is so interesting about that scene that you're talking about, Tanya, because it was his drunkenness that allowed him to be numb so that he could then be complicit in this sin. But that isn't how he got there in the first place. And I just wanted to read um, one little description of him. He's again trying to decide whether to do what the nice, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments wants him to do. And it says, it must, yes, (laughs) it must be remembered that in Mark's mind, hardly one rag of noble thought, either Christian or pagan, had a secure lodging. His education had been neither scientific nor classical, merely modern. Mm -hmm. The Green Book. 
Right. And I think that really sums up what's going on in his head, which is not much. But he has that desire to be inside of something. He wants to be in the in crowd. And that's really, um, that doesn't seem like such a serious thing. Not nearly as labelable as alcoholism. He just wants to belong. Right. But he doesn't seem to care what it is that he belongs to. And he's willing to do almost anything to belong. And I think that that's even more important than the alcohol. Right. I just mean the alcohol happens to be the little mechanism by which they're able to keep him, um, keep him, keep him in line. For him, it's alcohol. For the fairy, it's sexual deviance and power. You know, for each of them, they have their different little hook into them. But you're right. It comes from the point of all of them are just modern. But all of them actually want to belong. Because we're made well, for belonging. Yes. I think that his his wish to belong is a little bit different because he's not necessarily after the kind of power that the mm-hmm. rest of them are. And maybe that was a progression for them too. But for for many of them, it's about power. Right. Right. And for him, it's not yet. But that will, he does see that that goes along with the belonging. Right. So I think... They've all rejected their identity. So I think they're missing their identity because they, they think it's, they've, they, they're not accepted their true identity in Christ as a created being with a purpose. And so now they're searching for an identity somewhere else. And so they get, they, they, the more people that look like they're joining a certain group makes them feel more secure in that identity, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's not even the joining of a certain group, but it's the joining of a group that's going to be over other people, mm. that's going to dominate some spaces. And that would have been a theme that was prevalent in the 1940s. And right at the very beginning of the book, Feverstone, mm-hmm. who is divine, says to him, man has got to take charge of man. That means, remember, that some men have got to take charge of the rest which is another reason for cashing in on it as soon as one can. You and I want to be the people who do the taking charge, not the ones who are taken charge of. Right. Right. Like that was a wanting to dominate, wanting to be in the group that's going to be okay with dominating other people. Mm-hmm. So that is that's on the cusp of different kinds of power. Well, and it's interesting the contrast that we see because we see that Mark has to pledge his allegiance to N-I-C-E, and we see that he understands that these are trades he's making. So if he gives this and if he does that, then he gets this out of it. Versus Jane, one good meeting with Ransom, and Jane has has pledged herself wholesale to him. She finds him to be spiritually irresistible, and he uses that for her good. You know, he allows, he uses that to invite her into the deeper as Aslan would say, the deeper magic, which is the the deeper relationship with actually with Christ himself. She doesn't give in all at once. There's there's sparks of rebellion all along the way and questions and looking at the other women and thinking that can't be the way she wants to behave. And then she thinks maybe it is. And she's very conflicted because she hasn't had any training any more than Mark has. Right. 
but she still finds him irresistible. So I yes. find that to be such a hopeful thing. Like when we are fighting with God, when we are questioning what our life is, or we're questioning God, or we're questioning all these things, as long as we have hope in his goodness, and we are still attracted to him, even if we he he can take all of it. He can take the fighting. He can take the the, the doubts. He can take the, the times when we act out in disobedience and he forgives that. And I feel like Ransom was a really good agent for Jane in that regard. He understood that this was going to take a long time for her. But he even tells her that. Yes. Yes. He asks her if she's ready to be loyal to Jesus or something like that. And she says, well, I'm not sure, but I'm ready to be loyal to you. Right. And he says, okay, that's mm-hmm. good enough for now. For tonight, that's good enough. Yep. When they're going out to battle and, and it could be their last night on earth. And right. he says, that's good enough. Heaven is generous in that way. But right. he won't send out, he won't McPhee. send out <laughs> McPhee because McPhee should know better by now and should be ready to make his decision for Christ. And he's still holding off. And right. I, I thought that contrast was beautiful and fascinating. Yes, because McPhee is in the group. He is a warrior. Yes. But that leads into the other heavy theme here is that it's about obedience. She's going to go out and risk death in obedience to ransom. Mm -hmm. McPhee can't decide to be obedient. And he's just spoiling to get in there and, and fight. And he says something to ransom then about, um, not actually having anything to do. And Ransom says a lot of times obedience is going to look like that. Yeah, exactly. And I love that part too, is sitting and waiting can be a harder part of obedience than actually going and doing something. And he, it takes McPhee till the end to get over that. And I think McPhee is like a, um, kind of a critique of a person who's just religious. They look like they've chosen the right team but they don't have the obedience. They don't have the heart that's following and you're going to get sidelined. You're going to be in the wrong fight. If you've just mm-hmm. picked that because this looks like a, a good team to join. He yeah. is honest or, about it though. Yes. You can be honest and still be <laughs> wrong. <laughs> that's true. But he, he's like the intellectual. Well, you know, prove it to me. If you just prove it to me that then that'd be fine. You don't have any evidence to support what you're asking me to do. Nope, we don't. That's called faith. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I, so I know that Lewis hates allegory. So McPhee is not Lewis, just like Ransom is not Tolkien. But I really believe that McPhee is supposed to be a version of Lewis. I feel like he wrote himself in here with his own long, drawn-out resistance, just like Chesterton's resistance. So they just didn't want to give in, but they knew it was right. And I feel like he is honoring so many people like himself in that regard, saying, heaven's not done with you. (laughs) When the mind, you know, the heaven is not, heaven is gracious. Heaven is merciful. You're going to have to choose the right team for the right reasons in the end, but it's good enough that you're here right now. Well, I think he puts himself into many of the characters. Yeah, for sure. Tanya? I kind of felt like um, I have two thoughts. With McPhee, I kind of thought it was someone, it feels relatable to me, where he knows and respects Ransom and loves Ransom, and that was clear, Mm -hmm. and he trusts him, Mm -hmm. and he has his back. 
but his mind and his heart are at war. Yes. And I feel that in my own life where my mind and my heart war with each yes. other. And, you know, it, like sometimes I'm just mad too. And I, and then I just think I'm, I'm a Jonah. I'm just like telling you <laughs> off right now. And then I'm like horrified by that. And then I want to be so obedient. And so I just, I thought it felt relatable mm-hmm. and maybe we could see ourselves in the story. The other thing going back to Jane is that at some point, I think Mark is reminiscing about her and he's, he's thinking that she's better than him. And he notes that she was raised Christian yes. where he wasn't yeah. at some point. God may have his way. <laughs> he may call you back. And I just feel like Jane was being called mm-hmm. and ransom and she was battling it. Yeah. That's fine. But it was in her heart. Ransom tells her, we're going to get him. We'll go yeah. get him. It's going to be fine. It's fine. So all along, you know, it's going to be fine. And then Lewis lets you know that it's going to be fine with Mark because towards the end, he starts saying, in future years, Mark remembered Correct. it like this. Yes. You begin to wonder. Is he going to survive this? Like, especially with some of the really crazy stuff that happens. But yes, he gives you that Mark's reminiscing of this. Oh. Mm -hmm. There's also a point where you're kind of hoping he doesn't because he's such an (laughs) idiot. (laughs) This would be the perfect character to take out. (laughs) No, because that, that would not prove the lengths that Christ is willing to go to to chase us down and win us over. Mark but it would be is... the red Star Trek, the red shirt Star Trek guy. <laughs> <laughs> the expendable crewman. Yes, but Christ <laughs> loves even them, you know? <laughs> and that he hadn't really, he wasn't irredeemable right. yet. He hadn't. And the whole, and I just thought, you know, as you're watching his path, it just is crazy. Yeah. You're thinking, what, what, what's even happening? But that's life, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I wake up and go, I don't, I don't even know. I have no idea. <laughs> what, what, what are we doing? Remind, his path reminds me of something. I think I can't remember what movie it was that we watched, but my mom pointed out that she had always sort of been against the death penalty. And then she watched this movie, I think it was based on a true story, where this man really never um, repented and um, changed his viewpoint until he was about to die mm. and she's like if that was like how his soul was going to be saved was like finally getting to a point where he was like i'm going to die then maybe the death penalty ultimately was better in his case mm. and for mark it's a turning point only when he finally thinks that he's going to die like that's a whole turning point of the story in my opinion right it's about three quarters of the way through he thinks mm-hmm. he's going to die and he's like on the brink of being in the inner circle. Right. And he finally turns around. Right. I I think that's right because one of the worst things about him is how mediocre he is. Mm -hmm. He's not really, really bad. And he's definitely not really, really good. And so he But look at how much evil he can do. He's not even a bad man and he is capable of great evil. Right. But doesn't he make you feel like what Jesus says about spewing you out of his mouth? Because you're neither (laughs) hot nor cold, you make me want to throw up. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all kind of thinking about that, about Mark yeah. at one point or another is something, something needs to happen to you. And it does. And it turns him around. But <laughs> I think but, that is a significant yeah. that he's just right there in the middle, like, ugh. Yeah. And he, fi- so he finally, at that point, sees himself as he really is. Mm-hmm. And he stops blaming like the system and other people um, and, and takes some ownership for his life. Yes. Really. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's my other favorite quote. Can I share yes. it? <laughs> this quote that Sarah was just saying where he was kind of blaming all of these other things in his life ties directly to one of my favorite quotes from The Walking Drum 
by Louis L'Amour. Mm-hmm. So it said, in his normal condition, explanations that laid on impersonal forces outside himself, the responsibility for all this life of dust and broken bottles would have occurred at once to his mind and been at once accepted. It would have been, quote, the system or, quote, an inferiority complex due to his parents or the peculiarities of the age. None of these things occurred to him now. His, quote, scientific outlook had never been a real philosophy believed with blood and heart. It had lived only in his brain and was a part of that public self which was now falling off him. He was aware, without even having to think of it, that it was he himself, nothing else in the whole universe, that had chosen the dust and broken bottles, the heap of old tin cans, the dry and choking places. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. That is a good thing to recognize. It's fascinating to me that the demons were so careless in the way that they wanted Mark to pledge his allegiance. That the stomping on the corpus of our Lord, that he just couldn't, he just couldn't bring himself to do that. I feel like the demons could have been more successful if they had just let him go more gradually. I feel like this, this renunciation, like it's so, Christ is so true that even a hardcore agnostic like Mark feels like that's just too far. I thought that was very compelling, that scene. I like that too. And I think there's a couple of different places where you see that the evilness in the men, whatever was driving them, went just a hair too far. And that actually saves somebody when they go, whoa, whoa, that no, that that's just too much. That that just feels so relevant to our time right now where, you know, boundaries keep getting pushed. And if you keep following that logic and really find out like where these views headed, you realize it's going to a place that's too far. But if you just sort of go there gradually and gradually and gradually, it's like picking up more and more people like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yes. But push them a little bit farther to like, well, where does that end up? Oh, no, that's not good. Right. Well, and yeah. that is what's interesting about our culture is that there's a lot of going along. But then there are things that just are so absurd that a whole group of people say, wait, what? No, 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 no. I don't want that to be the natural conclusion. I, as, as a Catholic, give credit to guardian angels for that. Um, but I think that that's kind of the point is that the, the demonic powers become drunk in their own power, right? They become so convinced that, that they worship themselves and their idolatry of themselves is what prompts them then to overreach. And that overreach is actually a moment where grace can cut right in and save somebody or a group of people. But there, there were people who had gone through that same process that Mark yes. was going through, who did, I mean, Frost himself right. had gone through that process. He didn't perceive that there would be something happening in Mark that did not happen in him or some of the other people. Right. And I think, you know, you're looking at Mark as the everyman, right. right? So I think every man has that in them to recognize, I'm not willing to go that far. But you also have people who have so chosen darkness. Right. And this was happening in Lewis's time, right? There were people that were buying in full on to the German philosophy, to Nazism. Right. There were many Germans who didn't, Mm -hmm. but, but there were upper level people who just bought that hook, line and sinker. And they, they went past those lines and they were willing to take 
an entire society and essentially an entire world with them. It's not unlike when we read The Rise and Fall of Adolf Hitler for our the landmark club that we did. And we think about how many in the party in Germany were actually behind the plots to assassinate Hitler. Because while they were themselves intoxicated with power, they were like, they were the marks. They were the guys who wanted power, wanted authority, wanted this Third Reich, but they did not want it at the cost of the insanity of Hitler's ways. And so you see that there were some who went right along with Hitler, right? And there were some who rebelled against him. And I think Mark and and his embedment in NICE sort of like teases that idea. I, th- I yeah. think that Tanya said One. something else. Oh, I'm sorry, Sarah. We always do that. <laughs> Tanya said something else that's significant, and that was that uh, was it Frost that you said uh, couldn't see that something might happen in someone else that didn't happen in him. And I think that evil a lot of times has a big blind spots that also yeah. actually save people because they're so self-centered that they can't imagine everybody not thinking the way they do. And that is a huge mistake. That yeah. they make a misstep in pushing someone too far too fast and it brings them to their senses and, and they're just dumbfounded by, oh, how did they do that? Yeah. I just wanted to read another quote. This part really stood out to me, again, as another just example of things that are going on in our own culture. This is towards the end of the book when Mark is still in the NICE but it's past like that point where he's like now realizing what's happening. So this is a quote. As the desert first teaches men to love water, or as absence first reveals affection, there arose up against this background of the sour and the crooked, some kind of vision of the sweet and the straight. Something else, something he vaguely called the normal, apparently existed. He had never thought about it before, but there it was. Solid, massive, with a shape of its own, almost like something you could touch or eat or fall in love with. And he then he think, remembers like common days with his wife. Mm-hmm. And C.S. Lewis is saying this normalness is the goodness in Mark, that um, he's, you know, above all of that, this memory of just like normal life is yes. saving him. Yes. <laughs> just like really stood out to me like, oh, my goodness, if you could see us now. <laughs> And that's too with Jane, right? That she's she's part inwardly raging against all these women who she comes to love because of their old-fashioned kind of idiotic ways in her mind, that they're so oppressed. And it's just beautiful, that robing scene when they dress, when the women are dressing each other, and they're kind of revealed in their own, the, their God-given glory. And it's just powerful to see that each woman brings a different color and a different light, but that it is in her putting on this dress of femininity, this this normality of being a woman and doing what a woman does. I, it's truth, goodness, and beauty all rolled into one scene. And I just, I thought it was beautiful to see Jane reject the feminist prejudices and embrace her own womanliness. And it, It's fascinating to point out, too, that Merlin, okay, so friends, Merlin's in this book. It's very strange. Um, I get get it, but I don't. Um, Merlin just wants Ransom to put everybody out of their misery and just cut off Jane's head right now. Just put an end to her. (laughs) Done. (laughs) Because she and Mark prevented the birth of a child. 
a child who would have made a difference. And the question is, what possible difference could this child have made? Because this whole battle plays out in the space of time when a child couldn't have even grown up. But I think it's that it would have saved their marriage. And in saving their marriage, it would have it would have saved that which is good and true and beautiful in these other ways. So I found that to be very fascinating as well. Tanya, you looked excited when I said that. I was so, when it, when Merlin ended up being a character, I thought, huh? And then I thought, ooh, ooh, I love that. I mean, if you like I, King it, Arthurian legend, to think that Ransom is the Pendragon. <laughs> well, and yes, yes, the Pendragon, but to see the magic, the power. Mm-hmm. That is Christ Mm -hmm. coming through in that way. And that Merlin, Merlin had to first pledge his allegiance to Christ in order to actually use his power correctly. And he, he was like, not exactly a good boy (laughs) during his original lifetime. But bringing in, I don't know how I want to say this, bringing in the ideology of the fifth century, Mm -hmm. the way people would have perceived truth, Mm -hmm. the way they would have approached things. Mm -hmm. And, and then um, comparing and contrasting that to what was the thought processes, especially Mm -hmm. of professors and the quote unquote scientific community Mm -hmm. and education and the modern world was jarring, Mm -hmm. but jarring in a way that we all are sensing it, but can't articulate it. Right. One of the things I always think about that we that we battle with as a society today is the judgment on past yes, centuries. Right. And no matter what you say, no matter if you say they were a product of their time or people don't want that, they don't want to hear no. that. They just don't. And so the paragraph where Merlin says this, I just, I loved it. He says, the pen dragon tells me, he said in his unmoved voice, that you accuse me for a fierce and cruel man. It is a charge I have never heard before. A third part of my substance I gave to widows and poor men. I never sought the death of any but felons and heathen Saxons. As for the woman, she may live for me. I am not master in this house. But would it be such a great matter if her head were struck off? (laughs) Do not queens and ladies who would disdain her as their tirewoman go to the fire for less? Even that gallows bird, Crucierius, beside you, I mean, you fellow, though you speak nothing but your own barbarous tongue, you with the face like sour milk and the voice like a saw and a hard log and the legs like a crane's, even that cut purse, Sector Zonarius, though I would have him to the gatehouse, yet the rope should be used on his back, not his throat. (laughs) Now, why do I love that whole paragraph? Because he's kind of showing us this person from the fifth century who you're accusing of being cruel and X, Y, Z, and he himself is saying, no one has ever said that of me. Yeah. I don't even know where you're coming from with that idea. And I love the idea of just stopping and reserving judgment on past generations. Like trying to imagine if you were immersed in that world, you think you would have thought something different? Mm -hmm. And by bringing Merlin back into this century, he was claiming the truth of Merlin's time, the truth of Merlin's way Mm -hmm. of thinking. The, The fact that the medieval people were very accepting of the thinness of the veil between heaven and earth, that the medieval people were inherently spiritual in the right ways. Yes, they had their problems, but 
Are those problems so much greater than our problems of agnosticism and cold rationalism and all of the 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 relativism that's grown out of that? No, no. Mm-mm. Merlin is like, let's just solve this problem. <laughs> Cut off her head. There's no reason we can't fix this. And this is the quote. It could not be done now. They have an engine called the press whereby the people are deceived. We should die without even being heard of. Okay. I was like, oh, snap. (laughs) (laughs) And now we have the internet. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think um, every time I've read this, I remember that Merlin was there, but that I couldn't remember exactly what he did. It's partly because there's a little bit of a question of why they needed him. But I I think it's significant that they, they bring him in and he goes and does his one job. And then he has to go away again. It's not like they brought Merlin back to life to now live in the present time for another lifetime. He has to do this thing and then he's done. But the thing he does is of nuclear significance. He gets the NICE to burn itself to the ground. I mean, it is, I mean, they are, their worship of him because they think the power that he will give to them. And they, in fact, the power that the, that heaven has given to him in this situation has allowed him to annihilate the human form of the enemy. Well, most of it. In honor of Christy, that she would probably say something about the audiobook. <laughs> and so I wanted to just say that. I started this book once before listening to the audiobook. And I think the darkness and the impre- oppression in this comes across really strong. At least it did for me listening to it. So I think in it helps you to analyze and keep a bit of a distance if you're reading the book, not listening to it. The 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 audio was dark, really dark. I I loved the audio. But but I am a uh, hands-down auditory learner. So for me, if I were reading the words, I think I would have obsessed over them in a way that the audio allows me to more passively enter into the world and walk around and, you know, take a look and, and then leave it be. See, I'm a visual processor. Mm-hmm. So I need to see the words on the page. So that's that's important, I guess, a distinction yeah. to make. I would say if you're an auditory yeah. learner, I think that these uh, Ransom Trilogy audiobooks are done really, really well. So if you're a person who loves audio, these are worth the Audible credit. Any final thoughts? Um, I did want to share one other quote that I think explains the title mm. really well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when uh, Mark is finally about to get into the inner circle. He's realizing what the inner circle really is. Mm-hmm. He says, for here, here surely at last, so his desire whispered to him, was the true inner circle of all, the circle whose center was outside the human race, the ultimate secret, the supreme power, the last initiation. The fact that it was almost completely horrible did not in the least diminish its attraction. Nothing that lacked the tang of horror would have been quite strong enough to satisfy the delirious excitement which now set his temples hammering. So I think that is just showing like this strength, this power of this evil force is how attractive it was yes. to him on some level and how hard it was actually for him to resist it. Like that wasn't 
an easy feat for him to, no. and that's why it took really him to be on expecting death to to think that he was going to be killed for him to even really be able to resist this power. Yeah, yes, yeah, good point. So. I have a final thought yeah. too. I loved it, and I feel like we could talk about it for a lot more hours. And there's so much more in so many layers, but there was one little part that warmed my heart. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because I love books and I love stories and I especially love children's stories. And so after Mark has escaped the nice and he's headed back to find Jane, he stops to get a shower and food. (laughs) And said he found a serial children's story, which he'd begun to read as a child, but abandoned because his 10th birthday came when he was halfway through it. And he was ashamed to read it after that. Now he chased it from volume to volume till he had finished it. It was good. The grown-up stories to which, after his 10th birthday, he had turned instead of, now seemed to him, except for Sherlock Holmes, to be rubbish. Mm-hmm. Amen. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I, lo- I love the reference to the Princess McCurdy in this book. Yeah, I did too. But when he says that one, volume to volume, it makes me think he's thinking of Andrew Lang's fairy books. Yeah, I was wondering, like, which series was this he was Oh, I thought to? I, I thought he was this is... following a magazine serial through the magazines. Oh. I wondered that, too. I think that's what then it maybe, was. It was a serial. Maybe Princess and the Goblin or Princess and the Curdy that way. Or anything. Yeah. Or anything, right. Yeah. But I loved it. And I think this is this is why maybe Sarah and Laura and I and our team, we love and we've committed so much heart to BiblioGuides is because the power of children's stories should be have the ability to make an impact for everyone. Or it's not a good children's story, according to Or Lewis. it's not a good yeah. children's story. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. One, one other thing that I would like to make sure that we mention is that Lewis doesn't forget to put humor in. Yeah. And one of my favorite things is when Mrs. Dimble says something about husbands were meant to be talked to. It helps them focus so much on what they're reading. <laughs> but the other part that I thought was hilarious was when they find the tramp and they think he's Merlin. Yes. And they're so, this is another case where they're so blind because they only have one way of looking at things that they don't realize what that they're, that they're pampering this guy who, this tramp, he's nobody and they're treating him like royalty. And he says something about um, how evil can't stand to be made fun of, which is something that comes from Paradise Lost. And I should have written that down, but I just think it's great that in the middle, you're just in this intense battle and people around you are dying all over the place. But there's, there's the humor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I have uh, one final thought that has to do with more of a content consideration for parents. So one of the central themes we've come to find is that, or central plot points, is that who has the power over life and death? And the NICE's chief objective is to secure the power to reanimate life. And to do that, they kill people, a lot of people, and they torture people. And what they are trying to do is unlock the black magic that allows a severed head to reanimate and be um, something more like data from Star Trek than anything else. (laughs) 
And we see a stark contrast to that in that Ransom and his team are able to reanimate Merlin, not through their power, but through the power given to them by Christ himself and his angels. And so, and of course, Merlin comes for a time such as this and then is gone versus the severed head. Their goal was to actually take man and render man bodiless and only a head. Man would never need trees. There's a there's a wonderful homage to the Ents in here, by the way. Uh, man will not need trees. He will not need air. He will not need water. All the things that man will not need if we just need to sustain his head. And that life somehow is just in a few talking heads. It's a very weird, very unsettling concept. Um, but it's, it is the natural progression of what this ideology goes to. So, Mom, you'll want to probably want to, again, this is why you'll want to pre-read, because you'll want to understand that and see how that is going to land with your young people. Laura, Tanya, and Sarah, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for this really, really abbreviated discussion on a very, very deep book. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much for being good sports, finishing out this trilogy with us, and agreeing to help us help us present it in this particular way today. I think all of us actually wanted to go into the weeds and talk about some of the really interesting things about this story. It's just not feasible given the depth and complexity of this story and the brevity of our time and the audience we have in mind. So we thank you for being such good sports and helping us to do this this way. So friends, Thank you so much for listening in. As always, let us remind you that we do have a cautionary review of the Space Trilogy, or as we all agree, I think, the Ransom Trilogy, on our website. Also, you can find out more about all three books on BiblioGuides. But truly, we do have lots more we would love to talk about with this, and we would love it if you want to join us and have that conversation with us in the BiblioGuides online community, which you can find the link for that in the show notes. And so, friends, uh, we're going to take a, a change now. In the upcoming months, we're going to go away from this darker, harder stuff and into some lighter, more engaging stuff. And we're going to have a, a wide variety of other guests joining us, as you shall find out soon. So thanks so much for listening. And until next time, friends. Bye.